HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills, and also by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farms raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com and SpringerMountainFarms.com. Everybody, welcome to a special edition of Radio Cherry Bomb. We are coming to you live from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival in beautiful Charleston, of course. We have a great lineup of guests today. We want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Heritage Radio Network. They are streaming this live on their site right now and hosting this whole awesome radio thing that we're part of. Our great sponsors, Springer Mountain Farms and Big Green Egg. Let's have a hand for those folks. Thank you. If you are at the festival, you can go. They're cooking something sausagey around the corner at Big Green Egg. You can go try that. It smells very good. We have some great guests with us today. Uh, to my right, which you can't see. Oh, it's on Facebook Live, right? You can also tune in via Facebook Live. Um, to my right, we have Amy Mills from 17th Street Barbecue. We have Vivian Howard from PBS's A Chef's Life and Chef and the Farmer in Kinston, North Carolina. And then we have Chef Katie Button from Curate and Night Bell in Asheville, North Carolina. So the theme is clearly the South. That is the common denominator for you three ladies. You really, each of you in your own way represents how the South is changing really rapidly and the role that women are playing in that. Amy, you are, you've been described as a, a barbecue heiress, right? That's what they... Well, that's sort of tongue-in-cheek, but yeah. I think I do a little more work than an heiress, but... <laughs> so what is that tongue-in-cheek aside? What does that mean to be well, a barbecue t- heiress? tongue-in-cheek, um, you know, my dad, Mike Mills, is very well-known in the barbecue world and is just is really, you know, sort of a figurehead and mentor to many people. And we have had our barbecue restaurants for almost 35 years. And tell us where you are. You have two locations in Illinois, right? Yes, we are in southern Illinois. We always like to say southern because we're eight hours south of Chicago. Really two hours south of St. Louis or three hours north of Memphis or Nashville. So we're sort of tucked down in the tip. We're at the mouth of the alluvial delta. 
and it's just a really special, magical place in the middle of nowhere. And you have a new cookbook out? Uh, on May 9th, we have a new book coming out, Praise the Lard. And what is that all about? Well, the subtitle is Recipes and Revelations from a Legendary Life in Barbecue. And so it sort of traces my journey and along with my dad's journey. So sort of parallel stories of growing up in this tiny town and really how barbecue has rejuvenated some things because factories are gone and the landscape has changed quite a bit. And you have that in common with Vivian in that Vivian is also revitalizing a small town down south, Kinston, North Carolina. Did you ever, did you want to leave, Amy? I know, I mean, you live in well, Boston too part left. of the time. So I did leave, and I've kind of circled back home. I do divide my time between Boston and southern Illinois, but I'm, I'm there a good half of the time. But even if I'm in Boston, I'm still working. As long as I have a cell phone and a computer and FedEx, I can do, I can work anywhere. Growing up, though, did you say, I want to get out of oh, here? Oh, absolutely. As fast as I can. Yes. What brought you back? Barbecue. <laughs> Barbecue. Barbecue and, you know, my my dad was, you know, his star was really rising. There was a big interest in barbecue. We were helping open Blue Smoke in New York and I was sort of hearing all these stories and things I grew up with and didn't pay too much attention to and I realized, you know, other people think this is really special and I should capture some of this. And so I wrote our first book which is called Peace Love and Barbecue. And that is entering its 12th summer, actually, but still selling really briskly. But it tells the story, not only our story, but the story of like 58 of our dear barbecue friends and you know, people we look up to and, and consider like family. And Vivian, like Amy, you just couldn't wait to get out of Kinston. Um, yeah, well, actually, I grew up uh, in a little farming community, like even 20 minutes from Kinston. So uh, when we went to Kinston, we were going to town. And we would get dressed up. Uh, so, yeah, I, for as long as I can remember, was, I wanted to leave. I wanted to live somewhere where there was an Applebee's, specifically. Uh, and my tastes have changed. But, um, yeah. So you left for the big city. You went to the big, big city. You went to New York. And then decided to go back and open a restaurant. Your parents kind of lured you back. What was the... What was the turning point for you when you realized it was okay to go back home? Um, well, we, my now husband and I were um, living in a kind of rough neighborhood, working like several jobs, had a little catering business on the side, and just like we're not thrilled with our um, life in New York, and I just didn't see it getting drastically better anytime soon, um, and we had an opportunity and like I think that's why people move places like New York is to find opportunity and um, I happened to find mine in the place that I thought it couldn't possibly be so that's why we moved back um, opportunity so not only are you back there but you really are helping put Kinston in the map on the map in a way that it just never was and you are celebrating all the makers down in Kinston and the surrounding area nationally, perhaps internationally, through your show, A Chef's Life. What made you decide that that, that was something worth celebrating? Um, well, when we opened the restaurant, initially I was like cooking food, like mediocre versions of food that I had learned to cook in New York. And, I mean, we were doing fine, um, but I wasn't like blowing anybody's mind with my food and um, 
when I started like paying attention to what was around me and going to local barbecue joints and going to like covered dish lunches and like paying attention to the food that I grew up eating and again like you said I realized that it was actually pretty cool um then I started tweaking it on our menu um and that's when I started to speak to people I guess with my food and so that's um I I found that it it helped me do my job better and um and just by chance I don't know I think sometimes you have to go away uh to realize what you have um and when you come back you see it through different different eyes that's a great segue to Katie because Katie had to go to Africa to figure all that out um, yes, I did. I um, had studied um, engineering and um, almost started a PhD in neuroscience. Um, so I went all that way. Um, and then in Zambia, you know, I was there for Habitat for Humanity, like a break before I was supposed to start this PhD program that I knew really not a whole lot about. And um, I had this moment where I was looking at everybody who was so happy and thinking, gosh, I really haven't been happy and in a long time, and I've been given every opportunity. And here are a whole bunch of people who, in my, in, through my mind, didn't have a whole lot of opportunity, yet they were all extremely just at ease with life. And um, that really struck me, and I was like, okay, came back, quit my Ph.D. program um, before I started, which was amazing, told my parents after, um, so they wouldn't convince me not to do it, um, not to be a dropout. And um, it was the best decision I ever made. My mother, you know, the reason we ended up in Asheville is <clears throat> my mother is a plotter and a planner. I don't know, maybe like um, Vivian, like your mother or parents, but she's a plotter and a planner. And little did I know, but as soon as I had quit my PhD and told her I was starting in the restaurant industry, she started plotting and planning. Like, how do I get Katie to be in the same place, living near me for the rest of her life? And um, she set her plan in action, lured Felix and I to this wonderful, amazing city, Asheville. She had me help her pick it out. So that was very smart. Um, yeah, help her pick it out. We were showing up to help her open her restaurant. And then the day oh, I after... that yes. Yeah, and the day after we arrived, she said, by the way, how about we share ownership? You do the sweat equity. You and Felix get ownership of something, you know, without needing the capital to do it because we had nothing. And, you know, um, from that moment on, she knew that we would never say no and, um, and would be there forever. And we love Asheville. So it's been a wonderful decision. Um, and I think it's turned out great. So. Katie is glossing over a tiny little piece of her biography. When she went to Spain to work at El Bui, the widely considered the best restaurant ever, perhaps. Yes, um, it, is, it is true. I, um, I went there first as a server and had the opportunity to work in the front of the house at El Bui. And I think, you know, being there in that restaurant and seeing the systems and how they organized and ran everything really convinced me that not only did I want to be in this industry, but I wanted to be cooking in it. I've been cooking my whole life. I just hadn't thought about it professionally. I'd been too busy studying science. Um, so I um, worked really hard to get back in the kitchen there. And um, when I did, you know, I, I, I really thrived in the environment because I realized 
I love like doing minuscule tasks for hours upon end, and I really enjoy it because you see an amazing end result. So it's not for everybody, but um. you know, at the beginning, I said the thing that sort of connects the three of you is that you're all women. You represent this this change that's going on in Southern cuisine. But I think really also what the three of you represent is is the family connection. All three of you work with your families. Your businesses are family businesses. And is that something that's particularly Southern? Because it's certainly not particularly New York City. You don't, you've got some family-run businesses, but I'm just curious. Is that something you see a lot down here? I, I think so. I mean, even when I moved away and was, like, hell-bent on living in uh, New York, I, my parents always knew that I would end up right back there next to them. It was never like a question to them. Um, and I think at least historically uh, in parts of the South, that's the expectation that you all kind of huddle and live around one another. And my husband is from Chicago and did not have that experience at all. And when he came down to visit my family, he was like so into it. And that was one of the reasons we actually moved back because he liked the the fact that we were so um, connected and that my family was over at our house like before we woke up, which he doesn't like that anymore. Uh, but yeah, Amy, how about for you? I do think that that's very common in the barbecue world. You know, there are lots of barbecue dynasties and multi generation families, especially in Texas. I think when I was growing up, we didn't know this was all going to turn out quite this way. My dad will very famously say, never had a plan. It just all sort of evolved. But being able to come back full circle is really a gift. And, you know, when I wrote that first book, we traveled for about three months. Every weekend we would fly off and visit with friends and just sit and chat. And I would ask questions and just turn on my tape recorder and capture these little snippets of history because these men and women talk to each other differently than they talk to a journalist. So I was really able to capture gold and, you know, spin that into a really cool book. I, I do think, um, you know, the family thread makes it interesting. It's some, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's easy. Um, you know, it, but it's, it's a gift. I think it's a gift. I think it's, um, you know, the, the, the one thing that I didn't expect was, um, how both wonderful and challenging it would be to get to know my parents in a way that I never would know them, like working with them and having to make those decisions and then seeing how they work with other people and, you know, how they are in their careers in a very real, real, um, way has been, um, amazing. And I'm really appreciative of it, even though at times, as you said, it can be challenging for sure. Does it add, restaurants are hard enough. Does it add a whole other level of pressure knowing that the success of the restaurant. So my father um, took his retirement and like invested it in Kurite when we first opened. And I think about that moment because like restaurants have not a great success rate like in general. And I think about that and I'm like, oh my God, what would have happened if it all would have just like crashed and burned? And um, I mean, and he was a dad who just had faith in his daughter, like, you know, any father. And I'm like, oh, 
man, that really worked out. I think he always knew that, like, regardless, he could sleep on my sofa, you know, and, like, we would we would make it. So, um, but no matter what was happening, so I think yeah, he, no he pressure, did that. Right? No pressure, right? No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> Since we're at a food festival, let's talk about food a little bit. What What's something special that's on everybody's menu right now? Well, we're planning, uh, um, we're expanding Kurite into the building next door and working on this vermouth bar concept um, in Spain. So I'm working on some really traditional um, snacks, and um, they play around a lot with amazing canned uh, seafood in Spain. And I had the best canned mussels in Escobeche I've ever had in my life in a vinaigrette that tasted like white wine. And um, so that's coming on the menu. Will it be in the little tin? Will it come in the can? I'm trying to decide if, like, the edges are too sharp for people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, like, I'm, like, weighing that out. But, um, they probably are. That's, probably that's, are. That's the mom and you. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Um, we, we have something on our menu right now that's inspired by something I had here in Charleston, which is um, a konomiyaki uh, or the cabbage pancake that Zao Bao Biscuit serves. But, um, you know, we, we do, we try to translate Eastern North Carolina on a plate. So that doesn't, that's not really Eastern North Carolina. But what we've done is, you know, cabbage is a really important ingredient for us. Um, and instead of the, the pork that you would generally have on um, an okonomiyaki, we have sliced tom thumb, which is this celebration sausage that we make. Um, and then instead of the, the, the Japanese mayo. We thin out a little bit of Duke's. Um, we made a sauce, a persimmon sauce that's uh, that's parallel to the the sweet sauce that would be on the konomiyaki here. And there's another. Um, oh, instead of the uh, what's the the shrimp? Instead of bonito, we have dried mullet roe that we. Uh, we grade on top. So I love that. I send it to tables because I think it's cool and people seem to enjoy it. That sounds amazing. It's funny, in the barbecue world, you can't mess with things too much. People people are very particular. If you change it, they will notice. And people kind of come for the same things. But what we're really excited about is that we've bought the building around the corner from us. It's the oldest car dealership in our town. And we're making it into a barbecue sauce factory where we will bring our sauce production back in-house and co-pack for other people. And we're going to have coffee and biscuits and sort of a breakfast lunch thing up front. And I think that's going to allow us to be a little more creative and do some food that we haven't been able to introduce in our restaurant. So we never thought that is true with barbecue. Like you just want it the same way you had it last year and the year before. I guess you don't even really do that many specials. We really don't. No, we don't. We have a pretty wide menu because we have people in our town. You know, it's not large, so people eat with us two, three, and four times. And some we have hand-cut steaks, really delicious steaks. So some people just come in for steaks; they never eat the barbecue. But about half our business is from out of town, and that could be out of, you know, out of the city, out of the state, out of the country. And those people are coming very for some very specific, they want ribs. So what keeps it special and interesting for the barbecue chef? I mean, do you call them chefs? The pit masters. If, if the goal is to keep producing something that tasted the same way it did last time, and you really don't, it's very different from what Vivian and, and mm-hmm. Katie do in terms of produce that's incredibly special and seasonal. 
Well, we get to do some different things for catering, which is always fun. And then we did a lot of different things in our kind of family special things. There were things we've eaten elsewhere. We did those things for our book. So working on those and perfecting those in-house, I think, keeps it fun. But, you know, barbecue, every piece of meat is structurally different. So it's you can't really ever just phone it in. You're still touching every piece of meat. You're still looking, you know, you're looking to produce the very finest piece of barbecue that you can and I think that can be a challenge in and of itself. And I guess there's kind of a zen quality to it, right? Sort of like zen in the art of Ab- right. barbecuing. Zen, zen in the art of fire making or maintenance because it really is just about the fire. It's about the fire and just making sure that you've kept it steady and even and the right amount of time and you just haven't hurried anything. Are we seeing more female pitmasters? I, th- I think there you are... tell the truth. <laughs> I think there are a few. I think that there are some who are probably very underappreciated and some who are probably over-celebrated. And not, not that you can over-celebrate. Maybe that's an oxymoron. But there are people who get more attention than other people get. And, you know, it's hard. You see a lot of husband and wife or father-daughter. You see a lot of duos. And the women do not get as much attention. You know, I, I have a lot of people who will ask me a question and they'll say, well, do you want to ask your dad about that? No. If I didn't know the answer, I would ask, but I'm pretty pretty good here. <laughs> so we're going to go to the speed round. We do a little speed round at Cherry Bowl. Vivian. <laughs> Vivian, look, really, the questions are really tough, Vivian. It's like coffee or tea. <laughs> All right. So coffee or tea, Vivian, which is it? <laughs> coffee. How do you take it? Um, with... I, I don't know why I can't answer this. <laughs> now we know why Vivian's afraid of the speed round. <laughs> With milk and sugar. <laughs> Someone in the audience just yelled, there's no wrong answer. <laughs> okay, Katie, how do you take it? Uh, coffee, for sure, and just cream. I want to know, how, what did you do in Spain every day? What kind of coffee did you have? Um, I drank a lot of cortados. It's like espresso, but cut with steamed milk. I have a hard time drinking like black straight coffee or espresso. It's a little jittery. Um, Amy, coffee, coffee or black. tea? Sweet or salty? Salty. 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 Really? All of you? It used to be sweet. I think I've answered this question the other way before. Um, I have I'm changed not a salty too. tick. Yeah. <laughs> That's the good thing about coming back on Radio Cherry Bomb. You can just keep changing your answers as you change. Uh, what is the one kitchen tool you use the most? Is that me? Um, a spoon. Thermometer. I have a cast iron pan. My grandma. If you, you, you two might have answered, or you might have answered this one before, but if you had to be trapped on a desert island with one food celebrity, who would it be? Oh, man. I, I, this question is the tough one. Um, I think we were harassing her last night at the party. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Ruth Rachel. Yeah. yeah, for sure. You were enlightening her. I would also say Nancy Silverton. I just met her for the first time this weekend. Um, Nancy's pretty badass. She's very badass. Did you watch her Netflix uh, Chef's Table episode? No, I haven't seen that it one yet. Just, the new season just, uh, I don't know, what do you call it, was dropped on Netflix. And yes. she's one of them, and it's really great. Follows her around L.A. and Italy. She's wonderful. Great. I had one of those moments where I was like, how do you know who I am? I love you. 
Vivian, who would you be trapped with? Uh, Michelle Obama. <laughs> I know she doesn't cook, but you said I could answer it however I wanted. I guess she counts as a food celebrity, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, she does. We were really happy that they decided to preserve the White House kitchen garden. So there was some fear that that would be, you know, raised by bulldozers and paved over and used for, I don't know, Hummer parking or something. <laughs> but uh, they're keeping that alive, which is great because that's such a big part of her legacy. Amy, who would you be trapped with? I am going to go with Ina Garten. Because? Because I th- think she's fun, has a great personality. I think you have to be kind of laid back and on a desert island, you know, somebody just fun to chat with and hang out with. What is the one food you would never eat? I don't know if there's anything I would never eat. Really? That's hard. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think I could take one bite of almost anything. Okay. I'll eat, I'll try it once, but I'm not a huge off-all fan. Okay. All right, that's it for the speed round. See, Vivian, it wasn't that hard. <laughs> so all three of you have books. Uh, Vivian and Katie, you put out fantastic books last year that are still pretty new. Um, just quickly tell us about the book and why it needs to be in our cookbook libraries. Sure. So it's a curate, authentic Spanish food from an American kitchen. And it's uh, the dishes from the restaurant and more um, traditional Spanish food, um, but written for the home cook. I really enjoyed recipe testing and writing that. Um, My book is called Deep Run Roots. I grew up in Deep Run. That's where I live now. So it's uh, about my life and uh, my region's food. And it's 600 pages long. <laughs> the book is a beast. It's, it's very impressive that you did a book like that. Yeah, I, that will probably not happen again. I don't know how you found the time. Because we, I mean, you all know we did the Cherry Bomb cookbook that comes out in the fall. And that pretty much killed me last year. So the fact that you did a 600-page book by yourself is just, I don't know how you did it. It's, to be fair it's what I always wanted to do it's why I started cooking um, and so I, I really did it yeah. <laughs> how did you find the time I mean you have two you have twins you have, a, you have I, restaurants um, I chose it instead of other things mm-hmm. in my life and Katie you have a little daughter was she born when you did the book yeah like um, I it, I was got pregnant like right after I decided to write a cookbook and um, it was I was like oh yeah you know you'll just like have a child and then like recipe test with the newborn and that's really unrealistic <laughs> so I learned that very fast um, and just had to work through it and I think it's a I think it made a better book though because it kind of changed my perspective midway about how hard it is to make dinner at home, you know, like when you're working and doing other things. And I was like, gosh, you got to try to make things that are simple. When you gave us your recipe for the, uh, the Branzino with the tomatoes and the potatoes, I think you were one of the only ones who was like, it's great because you can just use the same pan twice. You don't have to do that many dishes. I was like, only a mom would tell you that. Yeah, yeah totally. Against what we do in the restaurant, but... <laughs> right, because you don't have a di- you don't have a human right, I don't dishwasher. Have a dishwasher. I'm the dishwasher. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Amy, how long did your book take? Uh, my book took a long, dreadful year. I'm just coming out of the feeling of, of that, but I think a, a hard birth equals a beautiful baby, right? I think so. 
our, what I'm proud of in this book is that we really talk a lot about fire management, which I said earlier is the key to great barbecue. And we go through every meat just really step by step. So many cookbooks say, you know, cook this until an, for an internal temperature of X, Y, Z. But we say, check the fire now, add another piece of wood now. And it's really thorough in that. And I'm also really proud to have a lot of our family recipes and a lot, a few things that are very particular to Southern Illinois. Like, have you, all, have you ladies ever heard of a peanut roll? Yeah. Do you have those? So these are, um, it's a dessert, and they're sold in Southern Illinois. Like the 4-H of the church group makes it. When I was little, they would give you a recipe, and you would come back with this sponge cake that you'd made, and you ice it on all sides, and you roll it in crushed peanuts. But the peanuts are very important. They have to be good peanuts and salty peanuts. So it's just like this little salty treat. So that's, there are a few things that are very particular, I think, to our region great. that haven't, it's hard to write something original and new and... Um, so I'm proud. I'm really proud of that. And then, really, it's a lot about our, it's a stories and a lot of essays and you know, think, kind of a glimpse into the life. It's so much fun to learn about regional foods. Vivian and I just learned a new name for chow chow yesterday. Yeah, permanent slaw. But you have to pronounce it. Per, I've, I'm going to sound ridiculous. <laughs> I'm going to let you do it. <laughs> permanent slaw. Yeah. And it's because chow chow lasts in the refrigerator forever. So some people call it permanent slaw. We all learned something new yesterday. Yes. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining us on Heritage Radio today. We hope you have a great time at the uh, Charleston Wine and Food Festival. Thank you for having us. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills. In business since 1974, they've transformed ancient cooking vessels into modern-day masterpieces. Today, they sell seven sizes of the egg, as well as hundreds of accessories designed to make your cooking fun, entertaining, and delicious. Often copied but never equaled, the Big Green Egg is the ultimate cooking experience. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com. This episode is also brought to you by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farmers raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Many of them are second and even third generation. They're committed to doing things the right way. Springer was one of the first poultry companies to forego the use of antibiotics, and they've embraced other humane practices too. In fact, they were the first poultry company to earn the American Humane Association seal of approval. Learn more at springermountainfarms.com.